Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And one of the fun things about hosting a podcast with former Congressman Paul Hodes is that we both get to go out in the world and discover awesome things to talk about, especially other podcasts that we really want to share with our listeners. And that's what happened to me a few weeks ago when I discovered Gate Crashers. It's an eight-part podcast series from Tablet Studios that tells the story of the intersection of Jews and elite Ivy League colleges. Now, look, it's definitely about that. It's not not about that, but it's also about so much more. And I think that this topic is going to be fascinating to a broader swath of Americans. And that's why we wanted to bring it to all of our listeners, because it's really about how the modern college admissions system that we know of in America with its applications and essays and interviews and standardized tests, U.S. News and World Report lists, it all sprang from an effort to control how many Jews or even what kinds of Jews were getting into the most prestigious schools. And now, as the Supreme Court takes up a case that may end affirmative action in higher education admissions, it's incredibly timely to think about how we in America, with no inherited titles or noble classes, go about granting entry to elite status through our most prestigious universities. Our guest and the creator and reporter on that podcast, Gate Crashers, is Mark Oppenheimer. He's a senior editor at Tablet. From 2010 to 2016, he also wrote the Beliefs column about religion for the New York Times. He also hosts the Unorthodox podcast about Jewish life and culture. He also has contributed to Slate and Mother Jones, among many other publications. And he knows the Gatecrashers topic really well because he's a Yale graduate who has directed their journalism initiative for 16 years. And finally, although not really, because you do a lot of stuff, Mark, he's the recent author of Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood, a, neighborhood, a book I really want to get into. So, Mark, welcome to Beyond Politics. Uh, thank you. Most of what I do is chase around a four-year-old, but it's nice to know that when I get other stuff out there in the world that that New Hampshire is noticing. And so it's a, it's an honor to be here. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you. I was listening to Gatecrashers and it felt like it felt like you kind of had a, one of those listening devices on my life. I think we're sort of bizarro <laughs> mirror images of one another. We're cool. both class of 96. Cool. I have a lot of family roots in, in the discussion that you have. My, my rabbi at my synagogue uh, actually did part of his rabbinical education at the Tree of Life Synagogue. So uh, it's- uh, yeah, Who was that? A, what was his name? Uh, there's uh, Rabbi Ben Weiner. Um, okay. Oh, in, in the one in Massachusetts, in Amherst? Yes, in Amherst. Yeah, I know that um, dude. He actually did my grandfather's funeral. Oh my gosh. He's remarkable. He's absolutely He's incredible. Dude. And I went to college with his sister. I can go all day. I can play Jewish geography with you all day. His sister yeah. Miriam. His sister Miriam went to college with me. She's awesome. Anyway, I, I could I can keep going. I can keep Look, going. for people out there who think that there's a worldwide Jewish conspiracy Jewish cons of some kind where we all like Space laser. Uh, there is, but the only but the only thing we actually control is, you know, the amount of two percent milk at the stop and shop. I mean, we it's 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 a conspiracy with but with very modest aims yes. and ambitions. The supply yeah, of no. hard sucking candies, I think, is That's another right. area where we exert a lot of a lot of influence. All right, well, look, exactly. let, let's let's get into you know it's a it's a serious topic for yeah. podcast, but it's right. also I mean it's just sprinkled with all kinds of really fascinating stuff. You created a whole choir rendition of a racist song from the 1920s. You did a lot of really amazing stuff. Let, let, let's start with the first episode. So what sure. you do here is yeah. 
you go through, it's eight parts, and you go through each of the Ivies. You have an episode devoted to each of the Ivies, but you start with Columbia because that's also sort of the, yeah. the chronological genesis of all this. So, so let's jump into this. This sure. really hit me at home because my mother and uncles went to Bronx science. They, they were part of that generation that didn't end up at the Ivies. They ended up at city college, you know, along with all the other Jews, there's so much rich detail in your show, but could you, without kind of giving away everything we're not going to in this discussion, but could you just give our listeners the basic story? What happened sure. to Columbia? What do they do? Right. Well, the first thing is you can substitute it for everything we're about to say. You can substitute in for Jews, Asian Americans, Indian American, Hispanic American, Cuban Americans in Florida, any ethnic group that has arrived on these shores with the hope that one part of their, their success, their path to American success will be through public education and then maybe through elite colleges, right? This is the story of all of you. It's even the story of people who are ancestrally Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but who didn't have money, who didn't come from the landed gentry, you know, were hoping to move up from the sort of small town Yankee heritage into what they saw as the upper classes into the to the from the wrong side of the tracks to the right side of the tracks and in america as you said because we don't have royalty because we don't have titles the, the way that we credential people for about the past century has been through elite schools that's how we do it so this happens to look at the way the jews accessed and used and were excluded from that path to power over 100 years and as you said we started at columbia university in new york city which around the year 1918 1919 around the time of world war one all of a sudden realized the, the trustees realized, holy cow, the school is 25 or 30 or 35 percent Jewish. We don't know exactly. But these schools were not very selective back in the day, actually. Most people who wanted to go to them could go to them. They were expensive. They were kind of hoity-toity. Most people preferred to enter the workforce. Only five, six, seven percent of Americans wanted a four-year college degree in 1910 or 1920. So they kind of let in who wanted to come. And what had happened was all of these bright New York City high school graduates from schools like Bronx Science and Stuyvesant, these elite public high schools, were flooding Columbia and its women's college, Barnard. And this was around the time of the massive Eastern European immigration to New York City. Half of all New York City public, public school students were Jews. They were not half of New York City, but in the public schools, they were disproportionately represented because Italian and Irish immigrants were more likely not to finish high school for various sociological reasons. And the Catholic kids, by the way, if they did finish, often finished at Catholic parochial schools. So mm. if you looked at a public school, you were talking disproportionately Jews. And if you looked at Jewish boys who graduated at an even higher rate, they were often going to state schools like City College or SUNY, but increasingly they were going to Columbia. And the trustees of Columbia, who thought that they'd been running a finishing school for elite Anglo or Dutch heritage boys in Manhattan, realized they were running a school increasingly for Eastern European Jewish boys, and they didn't like it. So this, in around the time of World War One, they began instituting a bunch of practices des designed, explicitly designed to reduce the number of Jews in the incoming classes and they were wildly successful. And they their their measures, which we could talk about, were copied by the other Ivy League schools over the next 10 years. Whoa. So the role of the Ivy League colleges at the time seems both different, but somewhat similar to what it is now. I mean, similar in that the Ivies gave a stamp of entry into the American elite. And as you say, they still do. I mean, it's still the Ivy going to the Ivy League college is the road is the is the golden road to success. But it's a little different, as you say, because they weren't rigorous 
or perhaps even academic in there their was this selection weird, process. There was this weird moment. Remember that, again, 1900 or so, only a tiny fraction of Americans went on to four-year college education, especially liberal arts humanities education. You might go to pharmacy school, and of course, you could become a lawyer like Abe Lincoln without going to law school. So what were these schools for, especially these elite New England schools? Um, because remember, big state schools existed, University of Michigan, Illinois, they were teaching agronomy, they were teaching veterinary science. But why would you go to a place like Yale, which was going to make you study Latin and Greek? For one, if you were going to become a Christian minister, a Congregationalist minister, historically, some of these schools had been divinity schools. But also, if you just wanted to sort of be polished and get a little bit of, of gentlemanly education in the classics before you went into your dad's real estate firm or financial firm, proper Protestant gentlemen didn't become lawyers or doctors. They didn't enter the professions. They went into the family business of, of using money to make money. So the thing that we and, – and so this is what they were from 1890 to 1920 or something. And – but but around that time, there was a class of immigrants who realized that because they had prestige to them, that they were a good place to go before you went on to law school or med school or dental school, which again was something a, a proper gentleman would never do. But a Jewish immigrant kid who didn't have daddy's family business to go into because daddy was a linotype operator or a butcher or a tailor, they might want a Columbia education on their way to then going to becoming a lawyer or an accountant or something that would vault them into the middle class. So they had this specific role back then, which now, of course, is, is really increasingly what they are. They are about how to ascend um, into higher classes. But before that, they'd really been finishing schools. Uh, Yale's president in the 1950s through 70s, Kingman Brewster, when he was trying to liberalize Yale and open it up and make it more democratic and admit more public schoolers, he said, his famous line was, I do not intend to preside over a finishing school on the Long Island Sound, because mm -hmm. that's what he was afraid Yale would become if they didn't open up to African Americans and women and Jews and public schoolers. Can by, I just by the way, you but, in no, a wait, nerdy way? Wait, I want to get to you, but can I can I have can I nerd out with Mark for a second yeah. here? Yeah, but, the... but just before you do, all <laughs> I can ahead. tell you is I went to Dartmouth and we always thought of Yale as that finishing school on, on the Long, Long Island, Island Sound. Sound. <laughs> that's, that's well, that's it. ironic because anyone who's heard our Dartmouth episode knows that there was no place that was more about drinking, skiing, and uh tweed elbow patches than Dartmouth in the 50s tell me and about 60s. It. I mean, it tell was really me like all you did was drink and ski as far as I can well, tell. Tell me about it. We'll we'll get into that yeah. a little bit later. Yeah, if you ever saw yeah. that documentary Animal House, I think you get a, exactly. a good sense of it. The way I wanted to nerd out is that one of the really delicious details in your very first episode is the story about Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, yeah. and how he was shunted to this auxiliary campus where they kind of sent all the Jews to give them a sort of like, we want your money, but we don't really want you to be affiliated with the campus. And one of the things that just connected for me is later in life, he wrote one of his really outstanding short stories called Profession, which is all about everything you were just saying, how for most people, just the, the aspiration to get into the middle class by, by acquiring a profession was it that there's a whole society in the story based around that. And he must have in some deep psychological recess of his mind been reaching back to that sort of sense of immigrant experience of like, this is, this is the path. This is how to be successful in society. So you're Can talking. I, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. 
Well, I just was you're talking about Seth Lowe Junior College of Columbia, which is one of the most interesting things I discovered. I should say that there were some Columbia undergrads who had written papers on this before I ever discovered it. From 1928 to 1938, Columbia University operated a Brooklyn campus called Seth Lowe Junior College, which was overwhelmingly Jewish with some Italians. And it was pretty explicitly designed. There's a paper trail that of, of administrators who said one of the things it will do is absorb the students who are immigrants, who live in that area, which is to say Brooklyn or the Lower East Side of Manhattan, closer to Brooklyn, and are interested in just studying all the time. In other words, these kids, it at play, the Jewish kids, they felt when they came to Columbia, they weren't interested in fencing and acapella singing and football and, and the traditions of the school. They just wanted to learn stuff and do homework and, and make money. And that was seen as very déclassé. So they set up a special campus for them. And for a time, they shunted a lot of the really mostly Jewish students to Seth Lowe Junior College. One of them was Isaac Asimov. Another famous Seth Lowe graduate was Red Auerbach, who of course went on to for many years mm. coach and then manage the Celtics. And and Isaac Asimov was bitter to the end of his life that he never got a proper Columbia degree, that he wasn't allowed to matriculate there. He knew that it was because he was Jewish and and he wrote about it in his memoirs. Hey, Paul, in our future legal-based episodes, maybe we should make that the tagline for the Supreme Court, at least up to a few years ago, mostly Jews with some Italians. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, so so talking about Colombia is very actually very personal for me. My on my father's side, our people came from somewhere in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the late 1800s. My grandfather, James, was born in 1900 and in about 1919 or 20 matriculated at Colombia. So so part of this whole influx of immigrants from Europe in the early 1900s. So was was the reaction to this influx of Jewish students responsible for changing the nature of elite American higher yeah. education in general? So what you saw, absolutely. So the first, the first way, and by the way, I hope we get back to the racist acapella song at some point. I'll leave, oh, that, in yeah, sure. I'll leave that in your hands as the host. But the first thing that happened was these schools never said to the public, we want fewer Jews. That would have been unacceptable because they, the, the administrators saw themselves as, as enlightened elites. But what they did to squeeze out the number of Jews was they created the, moder the modern admissions process. So the application, which had been a page or two long and just asked for your name and address and stuff, all of a sudden asked for your parents' country of origin. It asked what your father did for a living. It asked your mother's maiden name. All of these ways to figure out if you're a Jew because if your father was a, a sliced whitefish for a living, or was a tailor, you know, that, that, and by asking for your mother's maiden name, it meant even if you had changed your name to sound less Jewish, they were going to get you somehow. The other thing they did was they created the required interview, which didn't exist pretty much at all in the country. That's amazing. Um, That's amazing. amazing. No right? interview. Yeah. No interview. So all of a sudden they interview you. And part of that was to say, you figure out, do you seem Jewish? Do you look Jewish? Do you have a Brooklyn accent of some sort. They created a more robust alumni vetting process. The, the creation of the alumni committee in part was to, to harness the power of alumni to figure out who's Jewish. The, the most amazing one is if you think about what's the most benign form of diversity, the, 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 the quest for what kind of diversity could nobody argue with is so depoliticized, so banal, so everyone would agree it's a good thing, geographical diversity, right? Who could disagree that having a student, people might fight about racial diversity, they might fight about international students. They might fight about their people who want schools to say all women or all men. They might not want integration by, by genders. But who could disagree that having a student, one, at least one student from all 50 states is a good thing? Right? Well, who could right. be against that? 
geographical diversity was the first way that they used to squeeze out Jews because, and it was designed to squeeze out Jews because that's absolutely amazing because you really hear echoes of that today in the case being brought by Ed Bloom in the Supreme court. It's, it's, it's still a thing. It's still a thing. So the Jews were overwhelmingly from New York city and to a lesser degree from Boston, Philadelphia, large Northeastern urban cities. So what they said was, Oh, we have too many New Yorkers. Let's, and they began, they increased the size of the admissions office and they began sending recruiters out to Idaho and Montana and California and various places that were barely states at the time looking for Gentiles, looking for Protestants. At one point, Columbia hatched a plan to create a Canadian quota to bring in a certain amount of Canadians every year on the assumption that Canadians couldn't possibly be Jews. And you absolutely still see this today. I mean, the desire of a place, and this came out in the preliminary rounds of the of the Harvard lawsuit, the Harvard UNC right. lawsuit that we're going to hear arguments for later this month in front of the Supreme Court, which is what happens when Harvard goes to Idaho or you know Montana to recruit. And it turns out they're not just looking for geographical diversity, but they're looking for white students from those areas. And in fact, they are less, it turned out they're less aggressive by their own admission. This came out in, they don't want Asian Americans from Idaho. When they go to Idaho, they want white cowboys. So it's very much present in some ways. Geographical diversity is the sneakiest of ways that they use to squeeze out Jews. So amazing. And you know, that really bridges to something that I am absolutely contractually obligated to ask you about, which is your Princeton episode. My wife went to Princeton. And so if I didn't ask about this, I would get into big trouble at home. Because one of the things that stuck out there was that there was a certain amount of bigotry or racism when it came to Jews, but it seemed like it could be a little bit offset. You tell this story of the dirty bicker and the eating clubs. Again, I just want to tease this because I want people to actually listen to your show, but that, that it could be offset in some ways by people having more money or more athleticism right. or both. And you kind of comment, by the way, you kind of comment that you're you're awfully good. You have great Judar. And I've always thought that I have Judar deflecting technology because my last name is not particularly Jewish and I don't look particularly Jewish. But anyway, you know, so it, it, what came across to me is- I knew you were Jewish the second you mentioned that your rabbi was Ben Weiner. That was the tell. That, that, oh, that was a dead giveaway, right? I'm very shrewd that way. You can't, yeah, it's, you it's thought you were hiding it. And then we started talking about your rabbi, Ben Weiner. I'm, I'm surprised that Columbia didn't go all the way to the most obvious check of them all for Jewish men, but but I digress. So is that is that really the case at Princeton and maybe some of these other schools that that I guess what I'm driving at is, was this straight up bigotry? Well, or was these it a schools, kind of thing no, where rich kids were sort of these exempted? schools, these schools look. Most people who have some bigotry in them are not bigoted toward the right kind of person from the group uh, they dislike, right? There's like a respectability I mean, politics. Yeah, I mean, people who don't like black people, they will say, well, I like the good black people. You know, mm. people who don't like queer people will say, well, I, don't, I like the queer people as long as they're not too overt. I mean, bigotry always comes masked with this deflection of, well, if only they behaved better. And right. that was very much true of anti-Semitism. These schools had always had Jews, in most cases going back to the 18th century, or in the case of Penn, well, they were an 18th century school. Brown was a 19th century school. These schools had had Jews from, from the very beginning, often among their earliest founders. And at a place like Columbia or Yale or Harvard or Princeton, the Jews had off, had, the Jews they were used to were Jews of German ancestry whose families had come over closer to the time of the Civil War and often had by the by the by 1900 assimilated to a great extent into the commercial classes of cities like New York. At Princeton, so the Princeton episode is about Princeton's eating clubs which I won't detain you too long to, to I, I won't explain those too deeply but at Princeton juniors and seniors belong to 
eating clubs. They're not super elite. The, the system is not super exclusive. Almost everyone who wants to get into an eating club does, but which eating club you get into can be a matter of exclusion and elitism because some are considered more elite than others. Anyway, go back to 1950s. There was a year when a bunch of students didn't get into an eating club and, and, and about half the students who didn't were Jews. And this caused a national scandal. It was reported on in Newsweek and the New York Post and other national outlets. And one of the things that people said at the time to defend themselves against the charge of anti-Semitism was, look, we weren't excluding Jews. We were just excluding the nerdy Jews or the Jews with bad personalities or the Jews who weren't athletes. And I talked to a lot of Princeton alumni from that time, from the late 50s, some Jews, some Gentiles. And what you heard from, from both groups was that being Jewish wasn't a problem if you'd gone to the right private school, if you were a varsity athlete, if you had money and knew how to dress, that basically if you knew how to fit in, if you if you knew the code, that you know that no one was going to give you a problem about being about being Jewish. And so we but that but that if you were a Jew who hewed to certain Jewish stereotypes, you weren't well dressed, you were a public school kid, you were obsessed with math and science, which was considered low class as opposed to being more interested in the humanities, that then you might be excluded from the eating clubs or from polite society or from the cool scene. But it wasn't because you were a Jew. It was because you're, you'd grown up in Manhattan or the Bronx and gone to Bronx science and didn't play sports and didn't have a lot of money, which basically was the group of Jews at Princeton. So yeah, it's tricky. I don't think these were people who necessarily were excluded because of vicious anti-Semitic stereotypes. It was more a question of they're not fitting in for reasons that had something to do with, you know, with their ethnicity. So before I get to my real question, which is going to be about the school I went to, Dartmouth College in yeah. 1968, I'm going to tell you a little story. It's not necessarily about the Ivies, but it's about an Ivy League type school, which somehow as a 16 year old from New York, uh, a delicatessen Jew, where my parents had assimilated, I decided I wanted to go to the University of North Carolina in Durham. So I got an interview. I dressed up in my wool blazer with my braces, fat little, fat little kid. I trundled down to North Carolina. I had an interview with kind of like a six foot four buzz cut former football player who basically looked me up and down. And at some point in the interview said, so how do you as a Jew feel about the use of the word ghetto when after all it was calling for you in the Holocaust? And I, I ended up not going to the University of North Carolina. I didn't know how to respond. So, but anyway, I didn't go there. Wow. But I did get into Dartmouth College. My father had gone there. So clearly I got in just because of the legacy program. And I and I and I also realized that I was one of the New York Jews that very few of us that they laid in at Dartmouth College in 1968. And 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 of course. Remember, this is the college where in 1945, the, the president said publicly to the New York Post that basically we don't let Jews in. We have we have these quotas because we don't think Jews would want to come to a place that's got too many Jews. They want Christian. They want Christian schools. So, you know, clearly from the episode that you did about Dartmouth, it showed from the perspective of the students, and perhaps this is true of many Ivies, they understood discrimination was baked in. I understood discrimination was baked in. They expected it, but it didn't mean they valued as students what they got any less. They still loved their school and went there. Why is that? How? Why, it was. Is that something about 
about Jews? Uh, is it something about us? Is it something know, about the system? I think there's a lot going on there. Right. So you could look at a school like Dartmouth. And the Dartmouth episode is called Why the Jews Loved Dartmouth. Dartmouth and the Jews Who Loved It. And one of the things that I wanted to make clear is almost every Jewish alumnus of these schools, and we do deal man, mainly with, in the first four or five episodes, with the alumnus, not the alumna, with schools that were at a time when they were all male. Although in later episodes, when we talk about Cornell and Penn and Harvard, we we include women students as well. And we could certainly do our own episodes on, for example, Barnard, whose president, Virginia Gildersleeve, whose dean, Virginia Gildersleeve, was every bit as anti-Semitic. Uh, that sounds like Nicholas. a made-up name, by the way. I know. If you really want, by the way, to a biography that needs to be written is Virginia Gildersleeve, who was a somewhat, I think, a somewhat open lesbian and, and women's rights activist activist at a time when those things were not popular to be in, in some ways was very admirable and also was a vicious anti-Semite and was the dean of Barnard College for many, many years, for, mm-hmm. for a couple decades. And and we she's a complicated and interesting woman. And Barnard was in some ways, which was the Women's College of Columbia and still is, but at a time when Columbia was, was all male. So if you wanted to go there, you had to go to Barnard instead of having the option as you do now. Barnard was in some ways more anti-Semitic than Columbia. So there are a few things going on there. You know, one is that these schools, look, if especially if you were an immigrant kid and grandmom or maybe mom or dad had fled the pogroms in Eastern Europe, literally had run 10 steps ahead of the Cossacks on their horses trying to kill them or take away their property or beat them up or right. My people. And for for our podcast and radio listeners, Paul and I are both nodding. This is something we share in our backgrounds with both of our, our grandmothers. Please go on. You know, and they they wash up on these shores in 1900, 1905, you know, and then there you are in 1920-something or 30-something or even 40 or 50-something, but with knowledge, having heard these stories in Yiddish from your own grandma about how horrible the old world, world was, how horrible the old world was, and here you are at Dartmouth or Princeton, beautiful, wealthy, leisurely. The opportunity to study with world-famous scholars, great inflated even then, <laughs> nobody failed out, you know, and you have four years to just read literature or, or study pure mathematics with people, a couple of whom might be anti-Semites and some of whose clubs might exclude you a little bit, but basically who treat you marvelously well and, and probably better than kids from the neighborhood back in Brooklyn where there might have been fights against the Italians or, or the blacks or the Irish or whatever. This is paradise. I mean, this is heaven on earth. So, you know, the fact that some doofy fraternity bro might get drunk and make some comment about the Jews really doesn't seem to rate very much. So that's number one. Number two, Jews were accustomed to facing more overt anti-Semitism in other places, you know, the neighborhoods they were from, the schools they might have gone to, to get to an Ivy League school where the anti-Semitism was perhaps present, but, but quiet could often seem like a great relief. It might, for some Jews, it was the least anti-Semitic place they'd ever been. Mm. But the other thing to remember is that it was also a time in America when people were told to be, for better or for worse, and raised to be less sensitive to what we call today microaggressions. The idea being that today we see little slights or people asking, why does your hair look like that? Or how come you talk funny? Or what is that word that you just used that I don't recognize? Today, we see those slights as building up to a kind of, that that, that collectively over time, they can inflict a, a kind of low-level trauma on people. And, and we're sensitized to that. And there may be some truth to that uh, for some people. 
But back then, there was no discourse around that. If a slight was low level and only came once in a great while, your parents told you to forget about it, your deans told you to forget about it. And for a lot of people, they were more than capable of forgetting about it. I certainly talked to people who remembered anti-Semitism with some some pain and some suffering and, and, for, and for whom their college years are still difficult to talk about. But that wasn't the rule. Mm. You know, I want to take us kind of back to the meta narrative here about the evolution of higher education admissions and sort of the role that that the admissions process played in this stamping of people into the elite. And you you, you have to go right through the, the Yale of all of it to kind of get to that story. So you've already established in the early episodes, we've talked a little bit about how this impetus to try and decrease the number of Jews kind of overwhelming these elite institutions led to the modern admissions process, the, the modern role of of these Ivy League schools and, and elite schools in general. But then you get to a later period and an initiative that happened at Yale to try and change the whole admissions process. So we have to talk about, you were talking about Virginia Gildersleeve, a complicated and nuanced figure. We've got to talk about R. Inslee Clark, who I have a personal connection to. C- could you just in a nutshell tell us yeah. who he was and what he did? Sure. So in 1965, Yale's president, Kingman Brewster, the, the, the unimprovably named Kingman Brewster, had the opportunity to hire a new dean of admissions. The prior dean of admissions had stepped down. And in hiring a new dean of admissions, he hired an underling, a, a younger guy who already was at Yale, who had been Yale class of 57, named Inslee Clark, R. Inslee Clark, who was known to all as Inky Clark. Now, here I should say that in a later life, he went on to become the headmaster of the Horace Mann School. And after he died, there were accusations that he had that he had looked the other way in a sexual abuse scandal, that, that children had been targeted, and he had hadn't done what he could to protect them. And people can go read about that and and learn more about that if they like. But for the purposes of this podcast, what's important to know is that after he got the job as Dean of Admissions at Yale in 1965 and holding that job for the next 10 years or so, he was charged by President Brewster with creating a revolution in admissions. Brewster, as I said, did not want to preside over, quote, a finishing school on the Long Island Sound. He wanted Yale to be intellectually outstanding. This was both because it was time in America. This was the 60s. There was civil rights. There was ethnic pride. It just didn't make sense to be a school that was admitting 60 or 70 kids every year from prep schools like Andover. It was also because in the early 60s, there had been a report at Yale prompted by the Sputnik launch and prompted in some ways by the Cold War that made people realize, holy cow, America can't will not be able to keep up with the Russians if our richest and so-called best schools are admitting so many like preppy yahoos and neglecting the geniuses coming out of Bronx science and other top public schools. So the idea was we really principally it was we have to go get pub, smart public school kids. We can't be a school that is majority private boarding, private school and boarding school. And so as part of that, it meant opening up the doors, not just to Jewish public school kids, but increasing numbers of black and Hispanic public school kids. And eventually in 1969, girls as well, women as well. So as you know, Matt talked about this at the top, the Supreme Court is now considering a serious challenge to the way universities treat race in admissions, and it may do away with race as a factor at all. The plaintiffs contend that Asian students are being discriminated against and have their numbers restricted because if the admissions were based solely on test scores and other academic measures, we would see far greater proportions of Asian Americans or Asians in our schools. I want to know, has creating gate crashers made you think any differently about this issue? 
Yes. You know, there are two things I would say, and I, I have not read the, I've read the brief in, in the Harvard and UNC case. And in our Harvard episode, we're going to get into that. People who are interested in affirmative action as it will play out at Harvard and other places should absolutely subscribe to Gatecrashers. And in October 25th, I think our Harvard episode will drop and we are going to talk about the parallels with the ways that admissions offices intentionally keep down the number of Asian Americans now. I've had, but, but, I'm not a legal scholar and I I, I want to there let me let me limit my comments to two very precise areas. The first is that we the first is that whatever regime we have for affirmative action, whether it's class-based, race-based, whether it has legacy preferences, which by the way are something else that was created to keep Jews out in the 1920s, mm-hmm. they realized if we admit more boys whose dads went here, those will be Protestant boys and so we will squeeze out the number of Jews whose dads obviously didn't go here. Whatever your affirmative action regime is, whether you're giving preferences to African-Americans, to to first-generation students, to legacies, to athletes who receive an overwhelming amount of preference at these schools, it should be transparent. The number one thing that I come to believe is we should not, universities exist to promote truth and they should be absolutely transparent. If the average SAT for athletes or for a different racial group, by the way, is 100 or 200 or 300 points lower than it is for Jews or East Asians or white people broadly. If the average SAT for boys is lower than for girls, which I think is likely true, girls, women tend to be more successful applicants, do better in school these days. We should know it, right? Hiding this knowledge from people serves nobody. And if we want to have schools that in order to look like America, to be 60 or 70% white, 11 or 12% African-American, whatever percentage Asian, but no more, if, if, if in order to do that, we have to have radically different standards for different groups, let's at least know it and talk about it. And right now, admissions offices lie about it because it would be so toxic and, and scary to talk about it. So that's number one is stop lying. It release all your figures right now. I mean, don't release particular names, but you know, anonymize it and then release the figures. Public school versus private school, by the way, urban schools versus rural schools. We should know this stuff. And if there are disparities, we should know it because we want to correct them. We want to make it a more just society. So that's number one. But the second thing I want to say, and a lot of people I talked to really agreed with this, was we are a, a country that has tripled or quadrupled in size in the last hundred years. And yet the number of schools that are considered elite has basically stayed the same. Mm. Like you might add a few, maybe Northwestern and Washington University in St. Louis and a couple others have sort of like joined the ranks of the elite. But basically, we're talking about the same 10 schools. We're talking about the Ivy Leagues, MIT, Chicago, Stanford has come up, obviously, in the past century. That's crazy. So the obsession with getting into Harvard on the part of immigrant kids, but also on the part of legacy kids who are fifth generation Harvard is is misplaced because getting into Harvard 100 years ago was actually pretty easy if you were from the kind of family that wanted to go. Today, it's really, really hard in part because we have artificially restricted our allocation of prestige. There should be 10 or 20 more schools that are considered really rigorous, elite, excellent places to go if you're a top, top, top student for whom, you know, the sky's the limit. And we don't have that. So we have a collective action problem that we have to solve. All the kids who don't get into the Ivy League, but 50 years ago would have gotten into all the Ivy League schools, should figure out what's the next school we're going to colonize and make our own. And right now, nobody does. And they're still crying when they don't get into Harvard or Yale. And that's just a mistake. That's a brilliant point. And I just want to connect to the Malcolm Gladwell series of episodes that he did in his last season of Revisionist History about this, about the U.S. News and World Report system what BS it is, and how it contributes to this artificial restriction of what we dub elite 
But I, yes, part go. of it, Matt, and, and here I have to throw it to your New Hampshire listeners who are not going to like what I'm going to say is if you really want to be an elite school and you have and you have restricted fund, if you don't have the 30 billion Harvard does, if you're the University of New Hampshire, or the University of Vermont, and you want to be a school that is high prestige academically, you have to shift your resources, right? Enough with the division one sports, which basically do not really improve campus culture, often make it worse. And, and frankly, why are we funding minor league teams out of the public fisc, right? Why are our public state legislatures funding the minor league teams for professional football, baseball, et cetera? You basically have to get down to like blackboards and libraries and labs. Absolutely. And no, once you do that, there's no reason that these schools can't be cheaper and better. But it, it needs it means that we have to like stop asking of our schools that they not only provide educations, but also provide housing, nannying and semi-pro sports. Absolutely. And this is why my alma mater, Swarthmore, did away with football to its great benefit 25 yeah. years ago. And the other thing I'll say is I'll just make the connection. The reason I got into Swarthmore was because I got a recommendation from the president of the Horace Mann School, where I attended, R. Inslee Clark. And so I, I, there's something vastly off, even though I myself have benefited from the kind of system we're talking about. I really want to, I, this is unfair to you and your work, but I want to shoehorn in, in just five minutes, a quick discussion of your book, uh, Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting. This is totally unfair. I want no, people no, to no. subscribe to Gate Crashers, but I just, I, I got to hit the book. Thank you. The New York Times raved about it. I will, mea culpa, I haven't had a chance to read it. Now I feel like I absolutely have to. It, it's described as poignant, riveting, like absolutely fascinating. It's a sociological history. It's it, it's a discussion of, of violence and community in America. Again, it's one of these things that's nominally about the Jewish experience, but it's so much more. Let me just hit you with this. You know, this is kind of about what happens in a Jewish neighborhood in the wake of the most deadly shooting at a synagogue in a, in a, or targeted at Jews at all in American history. What happened? What did you what did you want to capture in this story? Yeah. So I in in the fall of 1918, my wife and I just had our fifth child. We had a newborn baby boy. I was not looking to do. An Wait, 2018, 2018, 2018. What did I say? 1918. You said 1918. You might be the in Highlander. The in the fall of 2018, my wife and I just had our fifth child, a baby boy. We were I was not looking to do another deeply researched book. But then the synagogue shooting happened at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, 11 dead out of the 22 inside. And it was the it was the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history. And so I realized and it's also my dad's old neighborhood. My dad grew mm -hmm. up in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, which is one of the great storied ethnic neighborhoods in American history. And I began flying there. I ended up making 32 trips over a year and a half in, in mm -hmm. interviewed about 250 people. And the story I really wanted to tell was not the story of a mass killing, because we've had hundreds of mass killings in America since Columbine. They've mm. become all too familiar, but really the story of neighborhood resilience. And I was actually elated that the book ended up being a chronicle of hope. It's about how neighborhoods pull together and through bake sales and potlucks and sharing with each other and dropping in and visiting each other and bumping into each other at the local hardware store, how basically neighborhood institutions bring people together so that they can survive this kind of tragedy. And so I actually think in some ways what it is, is a, a look at one neighborhood as a manual for how to have resilience in the aftermath of something terrible. I thought it was going to be the saddest book I ever wrote, and it ended up being the most hopeful. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the dark joke among Jews that you can sum up most Jewish holidays with. Someone tried to kill us. We survived. Now let's eat. It's definitely part of the Jewish cultural experience to persevere through violence and yeah. tragedy. But it sound, and I haven't read your book, but it sounds like the other other cultural themes of rededication, renewed commitment is one of the things that comes out. But the question is, is it happening more broadly 
than in the neighborhood of Squirrel Hill because our synagogues aren't seeing a new dedication from an influx of congregants or increased engagement. So what's going on? Right. What well, does it America- say about where Jewish culture stands in Look, America today? American Judaism, like American religion at large, is seeing decreased connection, decreased engagement, decreased commitment. I think that's sad, not not just for Judaism, but for people who generally like being engaged. You know, if you go back to the peak of American religious engagement, which was 1959, 1960, when an overwhelming number of people, 70, 80, 90 percent of people went to a religious service at least once a month, most of those people were not religious. They were going purely instrumentally. They would have told you they believed in something, but basically they were going for the potluck suppers and for the aid societies and for the groups that that helped new arrivals and and helped immigrants and helped homeless people and help, and ran shelters and and basically for the connection and as that's disappeared it, in America along with other things along with the connection to fraternal orders to the masons and the elks and rotary and and ladies benevolent societies it's been replaced largely by people going online and sitting around and doing nothing and that's heartbreaking the good news is that for people who want more than a life spent people who want to actually play baseball with others rather than do fantasy baseball, right? For people who actually want to do stuff, it's still an extraordinary country in which to do stuff. And I think there are, you know, we're a large multifarious country where there's a lot going on and there are many thriving congregations of all faiths and there are many thriving adult volleyball leagues and there are many thriving fraternal orders, but but people have to go and want that. They have to realize that life is lived more fully in community, in face-to-face community with other people than it is on the internet. And COVID, by the way, in some ways was a huge setback because for all that we're grateful that we can Zoom with each other as the three of us are doing right now. For some people, it broke habits of getting out of the house and doing stuff, and they have to get back in the habit. And that's my great hope for them for for Jewish year 5783, which started last week. But the delicatessens are disappearing. I mean, well, that's because people don't want fatty meat anymore. I mean, the deli problem, there are more Tom, places than ever to speak get- Speak for yourself for crying out There are more places than loud. ever to get hummus. If you, <laughs> there are yeah. just fewer places to get to get corned beef. That's true. Look, I will say that for all the people who are gluten-free out there, I will take all the extra gluten that you're skipping. Uh, it sounds delicious, and it's it's awfully good for you. I also, I also want to say that for all the people who either listen to the podcast and don't like it or buy the book and don't enjoy it, I will personally buy you a Fribble at Friendly's. Um, what an from offer. The home what of Friendly's uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts. We will have a Fribble together if you don't appreciate your purchase of my book or your download of my podcast. Boy, we could go on talking about food culture, the destructive influence of the internet, but we have to end the show on this note. Mark Oppenheimer, thank you so much for creating Gate Crashers, which is amazing. People should definitely subscribe to it and check out the Squirrel Hill book. Buy it if you can. And we'll continue this next time. Can I come back sometime? Can I come back yeah. for you visit come you guys sometime? Come back next week. You're, it's an open invitation. Anytime. anytime. No, anytime. I'd love it. I'd love it. We'd I'll be, be your New Haven correspondent. 